Hey, this is Jay. You might be wondering, what is this music you're hearing? And what happened to the catchy crosswire intro I'm used to? Well, this is music from one of my former podcasts. I used to go by the name Frasley. And some of you who listened to this episode will remember those times. Oh gosh, I at one point ran seven podcasts. How did I ever have the time? My podcasting journey is how I met James back in 2018. So recently I was looking in the archives and realized there are some amazing episodes that I know the listeners of Crosswires will find interesting and exciting. This particular one is from my podcast, Frazzlecast, which was a World of Warcraft fan podcast. This episode was done with my friend Ali, and we talked with John States, one of the developers of World of Warcraft. It was recorded November 5th of 2018, and we asked him a bunch of questions regarding game development and his book that he released called The WoW Dev Diary, which is an incredibly fascinating read and a unique look into one of my favorite games of all time. We hope you will enjoy this episode and this peek back into the archives. Let's begin. What comes first, story or dungeon design? Usually a little bit of story. In fact, always a little bit of story, at least for the instance dungeons. If you're going to invest a lot of time, although the Skullmance is an exception to that. That was just a micro dungeon that we turned into an instance. The story usually you'll get from Metzen about 30 seconds to about three minutes of story before he skips out of the meeting. He wants to go to the next thing. So that's all you get. He just waits around long enough to say, you good? Thumbs up? You know, you got it? Got it? everyone good? Okay. All right. I'm out of here. See ya. And he'll go, <laughs> you know, and that is great in advertising. I've heard horror stories of art directors going, okay, now this is the shape that the room has to be in. And it, we're really looking for this real, you know, and they will just micromanage everything and they want to recreate a dream or something and it just never works because you work with what assets that you have. Metzen started out as a worker bee, you know, as an animator, as an artist. He understands development, so he knows that we'll say, oh, we, well, we're not going to get a treant model for that. So we have to come up with another monster for the boss. And he'll go, oh, you know, we got a monkey vendor in Booty Bay, but we cannot get a trant. You know, it's <laughs> something like that. I actually got Eric Dodds in trouble <laughs> with a monkey vendor. He just is a pet. It's a monkey, you know, it's an, and it follows you around. And he's got, what's a monkey vendor? Why do we have, why are we spending time on a monkey vendor? I can't get a trant to save my life. You know, the one we have is good. I want to get a little bit different kind of model. But yeah, so a little bit of story. We've got to have monkey vendors. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I actually don't know if those even made it to Booty Bay. I don't know if that's actually a real thing. I can't remember if I have seen that or not. No, it was just like an easy thing. Eric Dodds saw that, that there would be a monkey and he can just, oh, well, we'll just make it your familiar and it'll follow you around like a rabbit or a squirrel. And that's what it was. And it was just making the vendor. It wasn't a lot of animation. So speaking of Booty Bay. I, I've always liked Booty Bay. I think I was a pirate in a past life. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I love pirates. I think South Seas would have been an amazing expansion. Yeah. yeah. What was it like working on that? What were the challenges? What was the best part about it? Well, I learned that Southern Californians love pirates. 
it was a very, very big theme with the entire team. They couldn't care a whit about whaling caverns, you know, any, uh, you know, <laughs> razorfin crawl. They, but when Booty Bay came out, oh my gosh, they were almost like over my shoulder, just waiting to see what it was <laughs> going to be like because. The art director was a big fan of a game called Monkey Island. He's my age, and he is from the Midwest like me. And he would say, Johnny, you get, you got Monkey Island? And I'm like, yes, I got it. Yeah, Monkey Island, straight up. Okay, I'd never played Monkey Island. I never told him, but <laughs> I pretty much understood what Monkey Island would have been. It's a piratey type of tropical shantytown type. We had a bunch of concepts, too. So I couldn't have been that far off the mark, but I didn't want to admit that I hadn't played that game. But Monkey Island was the flavor. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it really feels like it. Yeah. Very colorful. And people were excited because it was at least a city that we wouldn't get lost in. The only thing at the time mm. we had was Stormwind. And Stormwind without a mini map or a hit the M key map, without those things, it was a roach motel. You go yeah. in and you don't check out. And it was not easy to port. People would have to port all the way to Westfall or Goldshire was another popular port. But yeah, QA people, a lot of people just got sucked into Stormwind and they never found their way out. They'd have to cheat their way out. So yeah, people were happy about Booty Bay being just different. It was a cool thing to see. <laughs> and any uh, challenges with Booty Bay? There was a, a lot of concerns. Booty Bay was the big win in that we learned what kind of frame rate we could get with lots of polygons drawing at the same time. That was huge. There's nothing in any game like Booty Bay before WoW came around. First-person shooters were doing 3D geometry. Console games did have cell-shaded objects, but for the amount of textures and the, the amount of geometry, that humble little engine was smooth as glass running Booty Bay. And we were really worried that not having occlusion methods. An occlusion method is ways of hiding geometry. So if I put a, a city on the other side of a hill, terrain occlusion stops the city from drawing and it helps out your frame rate. Another one is view frustum calling. It calls all the little objects out of your scene. So it doesn't waste time drawing cups and napkins until you get close to it. And that's what it has to be bigger on your screen. So in your view, if it's big enough, props and stuff like that wouldn't draw until you got close up to them. We didn't have any portaling going on in Booty Bay, so it was just drawing pretty much everything in view, and I kept the polygons nice and low so that there was really no hit on frame rate, which is huge. That's why Blizzard games sell well. It's yeah. People think it's the game design. It's all right, No, it's the low system specs. You would think that more games and more companies, more co studios would lower their specs on their games because it's easy to do a game with high specs. I mean, you don't have to optimize anything, but to do it on a low video card at the time, that was a huge achievement. Yeah. Wow. was a technological achievement. That's for sure. Definitely. Absolutely. What are some common myths about game development? You mentioned one about like graphics being a myth that you have the best graphics. Well, that's one of them. Why Blizzard games sell well is because they've always targeted low end systems. That's it. On top of that, they make great games, but it's the low-end systems. They were the only ones doing it. Another thing is how you start out. You don't usually want to start out with, say, a game with, say, oh, we're going to make a game with, I use the example, Siege Warfare. 
Siege Warfare is cool. Let's make a game about that and then try to figure out how to you know do it. No, you start with the gameplay, the minute-to-minute, the moment-to-moment gameplay. You build it up, and that's the scope of your game. You don't start at the top and try to work your way down. It's a, it's a recipe for disaster. I found out that self-publishing is really Blizzard's secret. You want to have the ability to kill your mistakes and explore your opportunities. If you discover something, even if it's not what originally what you are going after, WoW had done this a number of times. WoW was going to start out with no PvP. WoW was going to start out with very little quests. Quests that were just there to navigate the zone so you wouldn't get lost. And then you grind. That was the plan for quests. And if you discover that, wow, quests are really captivating for the solo player, we can actually make a game for the broad market and not just make a game for the hardcore EverQuest players. That's more beautiful than EverQuest. The freedom to hire a bunch of quest designers where you normally, like originally the scope of the game wasn't that, is testament to the, well, the leadership in the company, the understanding of what's cool will rise to the surface. So those are the plants you want to water. Anything withers, you want to kill it internally. Ghost had been built twice, killed internally. A lot of versions of Warcraft 3, Diablo killed internally, just engines that weren't working. The ability to self-publish is that's the secret for a good game. You're talking about, you know, scrapping certain projects, you know, Ghost and everything. I know after listening to you two on Countdown and Classic, you talked about Karazhan, which yeah. is one of, one of my all-time favorites, <laughs> including the flooded basement and the freaking wine cellar. I could have had a wine cellar in Karazhan, which makes yeah. me sad to know that I didn't get that. Yeah. Um, that would have been amazing. I can only imagine how frustrating it is to scrap a project that you personally have spent months and months and hours and hours of your time on. Were there some projects that you were the most disappointed with scrapping? Were there some that you agreed? with scrapping? That's a good question. Usually things are scrapped for a good reason. In fact, always, at least on Team 2 at the time, things were scrapped for a good reason. Dragon Isles, we lost a whole bunch of the theory of a whole bunch of different colored dragons to fight as enemies got scrapped. And that was fine because it was at the beginning of our dev cycle, at least with 3D Studio Max, which was our new editor at the time. I was just learning how to use it and I was building dungeons. Uh, They weren't the tightest dungeons. I had giant, giant caves big enough for dragons to expand their wings. And it's really only suited for that. Frankly, they were low poly enough. I didn't spend a lot of time. Not a lot of artistry was lost on that. Some of the things that got scrapped were for good reasons. We just didn't need the wine cellars, all the the micro dungeons around Karazhan. We didn't need that content. If it had gone into the game, no one would have gone there. They they would have been like the Badlands gold mines, okay? There's no reason to go there if it's a redundant. And when we tweaked the leveling curve, we lost a lot of areas. That was definitely a good thing for the game because that attracted the casual user. That's why they got a million people on World of Warcraft so fast. That's the way people wanted to play, and credit to Rob Pardo for uh, recognizing that and lowering the bar on the leveling. There's a trade-off. It's a cliche, it's whatever is good for the project, but what's worse is building something just being a deterrent on the project. I don't mind stuff being scrapped. I was having fun anyway. Well, and that's the important part. Ultimately, you want to be yeah. able to have fun with your job and know yeah. that you're yeah. putting all this time into something you actually enjoy. Yeah. The Dungeons brings up an interesting thing. I saw a tweet from you recently about the hardest week was when the game designers wanted random dungeons. 
that's something I've seen in other games, not to speak shade, but Final Fantasy XIV in its original version did random stuff. Then they have an endless dungeon mode now. What is your thought on the random versus designed dungeon? The designers were just reacting to having dungeons at all to play with Anarchy Online. Uh, It had just come out. Uh, Anarchy had introduced consensual PvP, which is a revelation to all the designers. I came from the first-person shooter, so I was like, go, 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 skill, skill, skills, I love it. But Blizzard's ultra-paranoid about griefing in their games. Anarchy Online changed their minds in a couple of ways. And because they were doing these random dungeons and the experience was very pleasant for them, they said, well, let's do it that way. After a week, they said, oh, let's not do it that way anymore. That's not a good way. Because the randomized dungeons, there's very little. You get what you put into it. And it's funny that you say that you enjoy Karazhan. Everyone likes uh, Old Dwar Karazhan. These are the dungeons that took entire departments months and months and months and months of work to pull off. And Karazhan, we scrapped almost top to bottom twice before we got the version. I had spent maybe seven or eight months on a BSP version of Karazhan. Uh, Another designer had spent many months on a smaller version of Karazhan, just a tall, thin tower, just following the lore without really uh, regarding the gameplay constraints. Yeah, so what you put into it is usually what you get out of it. I knew in my heart that they weren't going to enjoy it after a while. So I kind of just kind of withdrew from the conversation. It was a little depressing. I had another level designer resigned over it. They cared very much on creating places. I agreed with that sentiment, but I had faith that Blizzard would make the right decision. That was a bad week, but it only lasted like a week. Took a week for people to get tired of procedural dungeons. Every job has that kind of week, right? Even the good ones like Blizzard. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of motivation behind doing certain dungeons in certain ways or whatever, I know BRD is one of your favorites. Like you've mentioned on multiple interviews. It's an amazing one. Yeah. Um, you've explained that <laughs> you. it was built before the knowledge of how many people would be in a party, what real live gameplay would be like, that kind of thing. What was the driving force behind making it a, like a non-linear and long dungeon? The desire to make a place immersive. I was a big fan of uh, Half-Life, let the player go around Deus Ex and System Shock 1 and 2 multiple ways of doing things and it doubles and triples the amount of work that you have to do if you do a linear dungeon and there's one way to do it it's a lot easier to do it that way I wanted to create an immersive environment where the rooms their proximity to one another felt right quarry next to the workshop next to uh, a prison next to a gladiator ring which was next to a city which had a domicile and a bar just things like that that click really make it that goes back to dungeons and dragons you're not worried about technology you don't have to depend on artists to do anything you're selling a convincing experience of venturing into somebody's dwelling and if those people have boring things in quotations like uh, a water source, high traffic to low traffic areas. It's not like a bullet point, something you don't remember, but it holds everything together. And 
it's just way more immersive. That was just always my strategy of building. And I, uh, I also avoided hallways. <laughs> uh, hallways is one thing that uh, even architects, it's wasted space. I mean, there's hallways aren't interesting as rooms. There's a lot of opportunities that you can make rooms looking into one another. And if you just have a long hallway, which the gold mines and all that stuff that I built, they were basically hallways too. But it was mostly just to make it immersive. Presenting the player with a decision, do you want to go to do the gladiator event or do you want to do another thing? And you can skip past some content if you want to just jump into the city and go straight to Flame Lash. That used to be the boss. That's one of my favorite rooms. I just love that room that has little windows overlooking this chasm that leads to the molten core. And I had this epic boss room. Yeah. Actually, I didn't design how you could cut past content. Players actually did. Uh, the playtesters, the, <laughs> the lava <alpha> testers. <laughs> yeah, my uh, teammates figured out, oh, yeah, you could just do it this way, and you could get the flame wave <laughs> real fast. So they needed more rooms. So I added more rooms, and they were kind of tacked on. Didn't make nearly as much sense as the rest of it, but the designers, they love the Lyceum. For me, from a designer's standpoint, it's copy and paste. It's a very easy way to design. I don't particularly enjoy rooms with lots of pillars. It's a very easy element to overuse. I think it's a dangerous element for level designers, you know, but you work with whatever tools you have. And sometimes that's the only way to build. Well, I definitely have to applaud you. I ran Beardy recently for an episode of my podcast. And in this day and age, when WoW has gone as far as it has, when you go back and run Beardy, it still feels so immersive. And you feel like you were in Shadowforge City. Yeah. Immersion still holds up. So thank you. It's amazing. And the entrance, too. I have a sketch of the original Black Rock Mountain. There were bridges going over to this crypt. And it didn't make sense to me. Like, why would you put this crypt with a bridge, which to me signals a fairly main thoroughfare to, you know, this like desolate type of museum. Why not just leave it and use the chain? Chains were always part of Metzen's vision of hanging this big freaking thing in the middle of the chamber, <laughs> which is such an awesome idea. I wanted to just run along the chains and the art director who didn't understand that gamers learn everything. And he didn't think that people would know to cross there. Yes. But to me, it was very important to make the player feel that they were sneaking to places where they don't belong. Yeah. If I have a big procession with statues on each side and, you know, all these ceremonial type of, yes, I guess it would have been epic, but you ruin the fantasy of sneaking into a city of the Dark Dwarves. You know, I thought that was pretty important. They're awesome. It was a way where the player could learn and think that they're one-upping the developer when, in fact, you you were guiding them that way. It's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. Working as intended. <laughs> yes. I never intended people to jump from the statue onto that balcony. That was uh, <laughs> that was players learned that. And actually, Jeff Kaplan came by and said, hey, could you move that ledge closer? Because Torrens have a hard time making that jump because they're hit- <laughs> their collision box is bigger. And I hadn't reached that level yet. And I was a Torrent. So, oh, yeah, OK, I'll do that <laughs> for the Torrent. I want to do that. You, you tweak it so many times as you're working on something. And this is game development. Like, like non-developers don't realize a smart way to work is you're constantly changing, you're tacking, you're, you're, you're changing course constantly. And that's to actually lay out a blueprint and say, oh, we're going to make 
this game. That's why we're going to make a game, which is a Faustian bargain that a lot of studios have to make with publishers. And this is why self-publishing is important. If you go to an investor and say, give me money and I'll make this game, you're going to get halfway there. You're going to realize, ooh, this part of the game isn't fun, but this part of the game is fun. And then you're going to go, well, I don't have the freedom to explore the fertile grounds. I got to deliver on my, or you have to play the game of convincing them that, yes, you know, you want to go this way or worse yet, you need more money to go this way. But that's what most of the industry is locked into. I think it's matured a little bit. I think publishers understand that a little bit more. But it's still a tough, tough sell sometimes. That was one of the things I found interesting in the interviews that you've done, too. And why I'm excited for the book is I love the fact that in it, you didn't have all the things planned out. Yeah. But you were learning as you go along. And that that shows, I mean, Blizzard has been learning, has just been going along. Oh, yeah. In every project. Every project. I mean, as we're going along, we're just finding out, well, this mechanic it's not fun. It's redundant. It just complicates things and it doesn't give us any, you get rid of it. You know, you're constantly cutting, cutting, cutting. The good designer subtracts from their vision, not adding to it. And like, I, I liked how you said that quests weren't going to be one of the main focus points, yeah. but then you found out that, that your majority at base was loving quests. Cause why was all quest to me? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that was just, we were trying to solve a navigation issue and that's, we discovered that this was a really cool way to play the game. Uh, no, no one had really had an editor that strong. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book is David Ray, who was one of the tools editors. He said, well, we learned what the quest designers want to do with quests because he's building the editor that's supposed to, you know, make it. They want to do everything. <laughs> and, you know, that's punctuated by David Ray going, ah. So now I've got to build an editor that does everything. Do you know how long it takes to build an editor that does everything? It takes a long time. So that's, that's my David Ray. But uh, <laughs> that's what is fun, though. You know? And when, you ha- when you're building your own engine and you are funding your own game, you have the freedom to... And if things aren't... It's not like we can just wish list anything we, we want and spend as long as we want. I was really draining the company a lot. I mean, I, I obviously don't know the, like, the money situation, but we were owned by a company, Vivendi Universal was... It was going through the dot-com doldrums when while was shipping. We weren't getting any money out of that company, which... It's important if you want to actually expand your game. The pressure was on for a while to be a very, very big hit. It's just to support its own weight, not even you know the weight of the company. So it's uh, scary sometimes. Do you find that skills can be interchangeable with other industries like TV and film? Do you know anyone who's gone from TV and film graphics into gaming and the differences between approaching 3D and design? Absolutely. We had uh, one of our concept artists was, I think he turned down um, uh, LucasArts. He'd been to the Skywalker Ranch. He designed the costumes for uh, some of them for AI, Planet of the Apes, the Tim Burton one that featured the armor of the apes at the beginning of the, that was Carlos. He got out of the film industry just because of the politics. There's a lot 
just you know horrible people taking credit for their people's work and almost openly taking credit for other Ooh. people's work. I mean, it's just it's a brutal, brutal industry. Uh, we had animators from Disney and described it as a sweatshop. It was just a terrible place to work, they said. I'm not saying this, they said. <laughs> <laughs> but this was also before the Toy Stories came out, the, the right. animation. So Disney was dying for hits. They were under financial constraints. Any company, you know, burning through cash that fast, they're going to have situations where there's going to be sweatshops. It's nothing, to do. it's nothing to do with Disney. It's just a situation. And these big industries, they turn slowly sometimes. And for a number of years, it can be unfun to work in games or unfun to work in movies or whatever. It just depends on what the, the latest technological trends are. The transitions, it gets a little bit weird when writers try to make the jump from movies or books to games. You have to have a different mi mindset. Uh, just watching Chris Metzen, I think a comic book writer would understand computer games better than a movie writer or a book writer. Comic right. book writers, there's there's less finality in a comic book. That's the type of writing that you need for games as well. You have to embrace the prototypical, the archetypes, the obvious hero, the obvious villain, the tropes, the sidekick fat guy who's your you know your your buddy, your drinking buddy who's you know has wisecracks. All those tropes, they're cliches, but they have to be cliches because in unlike books, unlike movies. When you're writing for a computer game, your audience is focused on goals. They're focused on the chat log. They're focused on poor frame rate or bad disconnects. They're focused on lots of other things. So the story has to be very, you have to wield a blunt weapon to tell a story for games. Usually, almost always, you can't get that finesse. Your audience is going to miss the nuances if you try to get too uh, esoteric off the beaten path. You have to stick to the cliche stuff. It's like the, the people who just basically turn the quest in, accept the quest, turn the quest in, and they're not reading the quest text. And then they're like, oh, wait, wow, Jaina is doing something. I need to yeah. now go back and look at what Jaina's been doing. Yeah. Some people just want to play the game, and they have to be able to do that because you have to accommodate. That's another thing. MMOs are everything to everybody, and you have to accommodate because that costs a lot of money, and it's a lot of risk to make an MMO. You have to be very elastic. You have to make content that is interesting to the very invested player who's going to spend 40, 80 hours a week on the game. But you have to also capture the casual player. And if they're going to ever play together, you have to equip them with gear that is similar so that they actually can play so that there isn't a class system where, oh, you know, I just don't play. I, I can't contribute to the battle, whatever it is, because I'm not spending 60 hours a week farming or raiding or PVPing. That's probably the trickiest thing for MMOs is making a game for those two extremes that they can play together. For designing a game, what is a normal day like? You go in, you answer your email, you say hi to who's there. A lot of people, they get the latest build. There's always an overnight build of the game. A lot of people check out the latest assets. They want to check out their stuff that they've checked in. Level designers, they check in an asset once every three months. 
Okay. So like when you're done your dungeon, okay, you place it. And then it's got to be placed by an exterior level designer. And who knows when that's going to happen. There's usually a long wait. So the, at least the level designers, you're not rushing, you know, to, to get the latest build because suddenly everything happens all at once. And it's like once every four or five months that you actually get to see something <laughs> that you, that you can check out. But I don't know. It's mostly your head is down. You're, you're pushing polys. At least for me, there's you have the texture artists who are painting textures, the modelers who are meshing out the wireframe of the dungeon. It kind of lasts that way until you go home. (laughs) There's very few meetings that you attend. Maybe once every few days. I was more social. I would always try to uh, find out how much work I'm creating for other people if I add this to the game. I would talk to the engine programmer, Scott Harton. I would ask him how pathing would work around here, and he would show me, you know, those weren't formal meetings. That was just running into someone's office and talking to them, and usually the subject drifts to uh, heavy metal or cars or, you know, (laughs) other games or something. But it's mostly just... For a level designer, your head's down. And that's actually a good thing. A happy level designer is a level designer that's left alone when they (laughs) don't have non-level designers directing them. I've seen, I've heard about, I haven't seen, I've heard about some just horror stories of art directors, creative directors, producers trying to spin off a vision that now these guys are forced to kind of create instead of chasing their own dream it's it's much easier to to work on your own ideas at least i find than others boy it sounds boring <laughs> you go in you push around some polygons and that's that's it you compile we it took only about five minutes to the, compile a level so and what that means it just oh well, i guess it just compiles the level it takes the the wireframe mesh puts it in game so you can actually walk around it usually it's only a couple minutes the longest is 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 five minutes to compile but that's pretty much it and you look at how things look in game and then you make adjustments yeah it's but it's about that but hours and hours of it so that's level design and hours and hours and for us after we put in hours and hours and hours of work we come home and play wow to de-stress and unwind yeah. so back then after you put in all those hours 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 what would you do to de-stress and unwind uh, same thing. Played well. We played the alpha. We played the beta. That was the most fun. I mean, really, at the time, all the games were making, they were all MMOs. I mean, I, I enjoyed Far Cry at the time. Far Cry was awesome. Far Cry let you do something that other games never really did is explore different routes into... Far Cry is a first-person shooter. I mean, it was a tropical type of beautiful engine, too. Yes. But... I don't know if that was, that was probably after. It was a little bit, I think that maybe WoW and Far Cry shipped at the same time. I can't, I can't remember, but it was just that. It was WoW or other MMOs at the time. Yeah, but mostly WoW. We get kind of tired of talking about WoW after a few years. At lunchtime, there's just like nothing going on in anyone's life other than WoW. <laughs> it got tiring sometimes. Especially knowing that you would still go play WoW in your free time. You put so much time and effort into the game and to you know, these dungeons and areas that you developed. And then you had a chance to go experience that in the live game. Are there any memories in particular that you were able to run a dungeon or something that you worked on that when you went and played in the live version, it was just 
awesome to experience it in the game knowing that you worked on it? No, because you're pretty tired of it by the time. Okay, like, that makes sense. What you want to do is actually play other people's stuff because you haven't stared at that uh, for hours on end. You know, Sometimes you'll see something and it bugs you that, oh, I should have made that a hill. That I like Ragnaros's chamber. Oh my <laughs> god! I, I I built the Morton core around Ragnaros's design, which he was standing on this uh, circular pedal. Brandon Idol did this wonderful Ragnaros design. He's probably I think he started with somebody else's concept. I can't remember remember who, but there's like these concentric volumes at his feet that almost like a whirlpool type of thing. And I built the dungeon in a very circular manner. And I really wish for the boss room, I would have pulled the center of the room, the floor, down. So that it would have been kind of like a vortex. So we have that spiral going down. And then all that lava could be flowing now downhill. I really wish I would have done that. That would have been really cool. I know. And, and, yeah. and especially when you have knockback, you're now knockback. You're, you're on a higher tier. So jumping, you could almost jump easier from tier to tier because there would be that that height advantage of getting closer. Mm-hmm. So I really wish stuff like that, you know, when I play, I'm like, oh, why didn't I do that? would have been so <laughs> cool, you know. <laughs> How does it feel having your content still being played 14 14- plus years later, even if it's been modified a little bit here and there. You know, it's funny. I It just doesn't make a lot of impact. I've got people still playing my Quake 2 stuff. There's a Loki's Minions Capture the Flag league of people playing with Quake 2, our mod that we made to Capture the Flag mod for Quake 2, and it's called Loki's Minions. And well, actually, maybe it was Quake 3. Okay, Quake 3, yeah, it was a different mod. But who knows? I mean, it's you just it's kind of cool when you think about it, like once or twice. But then it, you get over it, and you never think about it again. It makes no impact on you. Like there's nobody at Blizzard ever stops and go, raises their hands and say, "Oh my God, we work at Blizzard. This is awesome." Never, <laughs> ever happens. The first day people come in, they've got a big smile. Especially someone from QA, they're happy to get out of QA. They're they're super stoked to be, you know, a production assistant or a junior designer after the glow wears off and it usually wears off in a few days it's a job and you don't even realize it until you see i don't know something you worked on in a magazine and you wonder i wonder if anybody's actually looking at this magazine you know even though you know intellectually that they are it it's just uh, it doesn't make any difference (laughs) really So how did you get started in game development? I discovered Dungeons and Dragons and uh, I would play with my cousins and they would get all the modules for Christmas. We would have to wait forever until my parents visit my cousins or they they visit me. By then they had lost their patience and they'd read through the module. I was the DM. They would just read through the modules and so I actually couldn't play any of the store-bought modules. So I had to actually, if I were going to DM, I had to make my own modules and I just enjoyed doing that, making these little worlds and little stories that people would actually play through. I did that for a number of years, uh, all the way through, well, probably stopped 
no, no, actually I did it through high school too. Yeah. But yeah, once I, I stopped in college, college was way too much work. I I'd had no time, no free time at all in college. I enjoyed doing that. And I picked it up again when I learned that Quake 1 had, this is like 97 or something, 96. Actually, no, no. God, it might have been 95. <laughs> that they had an editor that you could actually build a 3D environment and walk around it. And the implication was, oh my gosh, I can build some of those levels from Dungeons and Dragons and walk around in it. Oh my gosh, that would be so awesome. Never occurred to me that would be part of an actual game. I just wanted to build those environments. I eventually found a mod team, and that's where I really learned how to do 3D level design and how many years you had to work before you were even competent. It took a long time to just be competent. Years and years of awful, awful levels, just terrible levels before you're you're competent at it. I, th- I think that, that speaks to like a lot. To a lot of creation, just getting good at the skills, getting good at what you have in front of you. What would be one bit of advice to somebody getting into video or even board game design? I can't really stand my own legs as far as board game design. I haven't actually shipped anything yet, but I would say for at least computer game design, just find groups of people. If you want to get into it, that's where it is. You want to learn how to make something polished. You have to have the willingness and the desire to redo your work. That is what gets you a job. There's a lot of people who are trying to do a little bit of everything to show that they can do a little bit of everything. That kind of employee is 100% useless to a game studio. They need an employee who's really good at one task, who's really passionate about that task to redo their work over and over until they can't improve it anymore. That employee is worth gold to a studio. You will get a job very quickly. Dana Jan had one dungeon. He had one deathmatch level in his portfolio. One. That's it. He polished it and polished it and polished it. It wasn't high concept. It wasn't just super. It showed the fact that okay, this is someone that you don't have to lean on to create something of quality. That is a very rare employee. If you want to get in the industry, show that you are that, that kind of employee. Not someone who gets bored with something and, okay, this is good enough. I'm going to go on to something else. Nobody wants that. <laughs> unfortunately for you guys, that, you know, get bored easily. That's unfortunately, that's not good for this, the game studio. So you're speaking of board games. You have a board game you were you were working on putting out. Do yeah. you want to tell us some about that and sure. how you got into developing board games? My hands, I have uh, some weird neurological issue with my hands, and so I can't actually play computer games or tablet games uh, very well. So I'm kind of like out of that. I just can't play. And if you can't play games, you're 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 pretty much you know you're probably useless. <laughs> I mean, there's ways you can play with your feet, and you know, but I don't know. I, I came from a competitive first-person shooter. Yeah, there ain't nobody playing with their feet at a competitive level. Let me tell right. you, there's, there's just, it's not going to happen. And once you've been that good, and I was really good at one point, no, no, none of my friends would play with me. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, 
I would be annoyed when I wasn't the top on my team, <laughs> you know. And once you've been there, yeah, I've seen computer games. I've done a lot. I've kind of burned out on level design, or at least a 3D level design. And I wanted to make a board game that is a dungeon crawl board game. I don't like pretty much every dungeon crawl board game out there. I think they're all doing it wrong. What they're doing wrong is there's too many rules. It's too slow. It takes too long to introduce people on the basic mechanics on how to play. Yes. I want to make a game that you can just jump in. Hearthstone is a perfect example of a game that looks the way it plays. Just by seeing a screenshot, you understand. It's a, okay, it's, it's a card game. I get that. Oh, here's the cards. I get that. Oh, there's two players. I get that. All of these things just right off the bat. If you look at the other card games that came before Hearthstone, oh man, oh boy, there's some, <laughs> they find complexity, but I think that with board games, a lot of people confuse complexity with convoluted rules. Chess is a perfect example. There's six pieces in chess. From those six pieces, you can fashion very complex games, very complex, interesting situations. So I would like to translate boss fights efficiently to the tabletop uh, so that it's a brisk, interesting, tactical combat. That's my goal. <laughs> it sounds amazing. I'm really excited about that. Me too, because I'm not someone that's always good at rules and board games. So a game I can jump into, I'm all for that. Yeah, we don't really have that often. I've seen some really good board games. I didn't realize I moved to Ohio recently. This is where I'm originally from. And I was shocked at the depth of support for tabletop games. Yeah. Restaurants, cafes, bars, dedicated. I, on a Tuesday night, I was in Cleveland. I'm in Akron right now. I drove to Cleveland, this place, tabletop cafe. Tuesday night, not only was every table, and there's probably, I would say, 30 tables in this big room, big studio, standing outside the door are people waiting to get in on a Tuesday night. Wow. Wow. In Ohio, yeah. I live in Ohio, so I know. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, downtown Cleveland, and there's a place in Hudson called the Molten Meeple. It's cool because it's milkshakes and beer. I mean, how cool is that? They have like seven rooms that are themed differently. These are not little, oh, back room, you know, okay, we'll, we'll have some board games here. These are dedicated businesses catering to board games. There's nothing like this that I saw in California, certainly not within driving dress. There's a number of places. There's a big place opening up in Canton, I understand, that's going to be uh, catering to board games. Yeah. Here in Columbus, we have the, the soldiery. Oh, yeah. Columbus is way in there. Yeah, you know it. And, and then Origins every year. Sure. Huge. And Gen Con's not that far away. And yeah, I'm playtesting or talking to board game players every week. There's so many Facebook groups for playtesting board games. I thought I'd have to be able to find a high population. Like I, I spent 10 years in New York City. And I was thinking, oh, I'd have to go to New York and get a whole bunch of people how to sign up on, I don't know, Meetup or something to get game testers. And you can test your game every single week if you want. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. So, oh, love in Ohio. Who, who knew? <laughs> yeah. 
I think one thing Ohio has for going for it is OSU brings in a huge amount of college students, and college students tend to be geeks. So, I mean, it, yeah. it's the perfect fit. Yeah, in a big college. Quite a big college, too. <laughs> yes. What are your, some of your current interests, like hobbies and things like that? I've been living and breathing this book for so long. I've got three projects that I'm doing right now. Uh, the novel is actually what I started. I have a four novel thing that I, I actually started writing just to see if I could. I read a lot and I have high regard for writers and I didn't want to be a bad writer, which I think is what stopped me from being a writer for the longest time because there's, there's a lot of bad writers out there and I didn't want to be another one of them. And after giving it some time and rereading some of my work, I, oh, this is actually pretty good. There's, there's, some, there's some meat to this. I thought, well, if I'm going to do this epic novel, I think I should finish some old business, and that is going back to the World of Warcraft diary. It was unfinished business, and I wanted to like get that done before I move on to another <laughs> big thing. So I'm working on the board game, the book, and the novel at the same time. But hiking, scuba diving when I was in Southern California... Oh boy, just gaming, you know, tabletop gaming. I get a greater appreciation for what's going goes into the game when I see the behind the scenes. It's one thing to play it, but when I hear the hours that go into it, it actually makes me a little less critical in a way. Yeah. I mean, I, there were things I want the game to be, but knowing that the work put into it. Right. That that it really was one of the goals. I I think I ended on Huh. I think I, I read an article for Wowhead. I I think it was the Warsong Gulch one where I thought if people would understand like how erratic, how flawed the process is, not only would it inspire them to see themselves in that role saying, Oh, you know, I could actually do this. These guys, these guys got major problems, you know, like they, they, they work just like me. They think just like me, I could actually be a game developer that there'd be more people trying to get into the industry. Cause Another myth for game development, it's really hard to find good employees. It's really hard. We look for years for finding a texture artist for dungeons. Sometimes some roles are easier to hire than others, obviously. Yeah, so I'd like to, people to be inspired to actually pr pursue game development as a vocation and to be a little bit understanding of what developers go through and why they're making these decisions so i think people will be a little bit more sympathetic to not just blizzard you know i could have wrote the wow diary about any big title game gta or something like that and just show i let me tell you i can't imagine the stories that the gta developers have i mean it's just a crazy sometimes you get in these crazy situations i find it really fascinating and thank god blizzard liked the idea of this book to actually open the doors and you know show what's going on inside so uh it was a brave it was a brave move on them they they didn't need to do this and i think it's great because it's it is really easy for players just to be so focused on their frustration and say why can't you guys just do this yeah when there's just oh. so much involved with every little thing and people underestimate yeah. that yeah and because of the beauty of social media <laughs> um you <laughs> yeah. Blizzard and developers and everything get to hear all of these comments, the, the good and the massive amount of bad. How do developers handle that increasing pressure from social media? Well, I can tell you the artists and the level designers don't care one whit at all. It doesn't reach them because they can develop their stuff really without 
feedback from players. Right. Uh, it's the class designers. Ooh, yeah, they depend on data and they have to go to the boards. <laughs> I mean, they're world weary souls, that's for sure. But and and they realize that people they perceive a lot of things that aren't really happening. The voodoo that they imagine the Anixia. Oh, don't stand too close to one another, or Anixia <laughs> will give us a deep breath. How dare you stand close to me? You don't know how to play. How dare you? How dare you? it was a random event. That's all it was. It was a random event. But people imagine because that's just the way our brains work to see things. And it's not just with Anixia. It's uh, class balance or, oh, rogues are only so, oh, oh, you know, it's just on and on. And you really can't please everyone, but that's their job to please everyone. I can't speak. I, I won't even pretend to speak for them. I'm sure it does affect <laughs> them. I want to thank you. You've brought up great stuff. I do have one that I'm, I'm dying to ask. Oh, yeah, sure. So earlier you mentioned Dragon Isles, yeah. which I, I've always been interested by old gods and everything. And I have a theory that eventually we're going to get an old god expansion. Do you think there's a chance that we might see some of your work on the Dragon Isles if we ever get to see an old god expansion with Dragon Isles? Hopefully not. <laughs> My work was very low poly and it was not all that. <laughs> yeah, it's the concept for the Squid Temple is which I think what everybody likes. Uh, that wasn't even my concept. I can't even say that's, that's my work. The concept, Carlo, the guy from the movies, Carlo Reliano, he put that thing together and it was just so cool. But it's got to be good for gameplay. You know, right. if, if it doesn't really fit into... The narrative, well, actually, the narrative is actually the easiest thing to change. That's another thing, game designers. The very last thing that happens is often the story, accommodating the assets that you have to work with. Right. Uh, dragons, we found, oh, only black dragons are the bad dragons. So can't have players battling green dragons and then gold dragons. It just doesn't make any sense in, in, in the world. So, <laughs> yeah, so hopefully not. I mean, I love the old God stuff. I think it's way more interesting than, than the Titan stuff. Titan stuff to me for a level designer is too challenging, too high concept to actually build convincing environments. Now, some of the stuff like Ungoro Crater is all Titan. You know, it's that's their Petri dish for the world. Right. As Chris describes it, but. I don't know. I, I just like, I love the old gods. Uh, you know, any battle with an old god is a, is a lot of fun. You can do a lot of cool things with the architecture. But specifically Dragon Isles, I think it needs it needs to either be, well, first of all, they would have to rebuild it. It's just way too low poly, way right. too simple. That was built for a game that I didn't know how many people were going to be in a raid or how many monsters they were going to be fighting at the same time. You know, it's a cool concept for that building, but it has to fit into the gameplay. And the temple on top of the squid wasn't nearly big enough to hold a raid. So right. some things would have to be worked out. And if it takes that much elbow grease to shoehorn it into the game, there's some diminishing turns, uh, returns with forcing that thing to fit into the hole. Right. You kind of want to follow usually what the technology allows you know the, someone will discover this new optimization where you can draw lots and lots of say the next optimization lots and lots and lots of monsters all at the same time 
well, whatever that animation optimization is or whatever that rendering optimization is, they're going to have a narrative where the swarm comes out and that's <laughs> all races have to find again. That's the best way to do game development, not making up a blueprint in some hermetically sealed office and then presenting that to a team and say, try to make this happen. And that would speak to why sometimes we see things that we think are going to be amazing. And then when they get in the game, they're not always that way because they're trying to get it. It just, it's that concept to execution. Yeah. Usually the high concept stuff falls apart. The uh, Teldrassil, the the world tree, a lot of people, yeah, is this, it kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, it's a big trunk. I don't see where the branches are going. You know, <laughs> it's you want it to work, but does it really? Does it really work? The Emerald Dream. Everybody thought it was a great idea. Everyone, till you build the assets and you build tons and tons of assets, then you place it and you jump in, and the assets aren't overwhelmingly bizarre. It looks like you're in a zone where there's some reason there's trees floating and there's some, <laughs> you know, weird looking flowers and it just looks stupid because the Emerald Dream is supposed to be an overwhelming type of, you know, it's another realm, but you can't pull that off without destroying your frame rate, rate with tons and tons of stuff. But when frame rate, who knows, when the frame rate comes... You know, when, when you can actually draw that much stuff, maybe the Emerald Dream is a lot easier to pull off. And now we know who, who actually burned Teldrassil. Is the designer who originally built Teldrassil <laughs> like, I not I want it, so they burned it. Yeah, yeah. It's just the high concept stuff. I had there the world. You see some of the mechanics, the seams in the world, where you see there's giant machines, and that's what the world is actually made of. But that's awfully high concept and chris to his credit said he doesn't want to see a bunch of cogs i had the idea of what if instead of wheels with cogs giant stone magnets and it's mineral it's primitive and it can look old you know and so we had a bunch of ruined stones but oh they were some of that stuff got weird those little mechanical caves and storming searches so bizarre and they took so long to build because you're thinking you can't build just like a crankshaft because then it looks like a crankshaft it has to look like machinery but not identifiable machinery and that's really hard to do so yeah haunted houses easy to do that's that's <laughs> I, i'd love to build haunted houses <laughs> they made one in uh, vfa oh so. yeah yeah at least one in every expansion you got to have a haunted house oh, yeah. right absolutely so really quick speaking um to storm peaks of wrath did you work on any of the dungeon raids in wrath let's see next ramus was right before wrath black temple was wrath i did black temple i hated the black temple <laughs> i hated the idea of a ziggurat it's the stupidest ugliest building black temple was around from vanilla wow i didn't like it then all the concepts were bad so we put it off to well not burning crusade but uh, wrath of the lich king we pushed it off till then i still don't like the way it looks it's just ugh don't do cigarettes, kids. <laughs> when you grow up, don't build cigarettes. Don't do cigarettes. <laughs> That's if you learn nothing else, don't build cigarettes. <laughs> it's too constraining. Where can people find you? You can find my book 
at thewowdiary.com. And if you want to see, sign up for previews of my board game, you can go to whenitsready.com. There's a, and I won't spam you. It's just like once a year, I'll send an email saying, you know, here's the progress so far. That is a great name. <laughs> oh, whenitsready.com. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I that's love a, it. That's a self publisher's name. Yeah. If you're investing in a company, you don't want to invest in someone that's They'll ship when they're ready. Uh, so that name was available. Nice. I thank you again for joining us. Yes, thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> I love being able to, to hear your experience, seeing the joy in your face. I, that's the part you don't you don't you don't get to see from it from a designer. Just getting to see <laughs> their passion for what they do. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't often get to connect with people. We're doing an AMA, and I've got a couple other old teammates, and they are so super stoked to talk about this that the guys on Reddit said tomorrow on Reddit Classic Wow. At 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're doing an AMA. And I just grabbed some guys that no one from Blizzard can actually do it because, you know, then you get PR departments involved and you can't right. say anything. So I just grabbed four. And I <laughs> didn't ask anybody else because the moderator said, well, just four is enough. That's fine. We got a level designer, Bo Bell, who built a Silver Pine and Duskwood and Sam Watinga, who did the AI, who did Battlegrounds and the Lua code. So if you're into add-ons, that's the guy, Sam Watinga. Uh, Alexander Brazzi, who did Pet Battles and did the first uh, Warlock overhaul and a lot of quests, boss fights. Yeah, we're all going to be there. So they're super stoked. And I think our teammates are actually jealous that we're able to connect with fans. (laughs) So this is actually, this is a treat for me too. So I'm enjoying this. The book is an excuse to actually talk about (laughs) the real reason you did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you. It's definitely a treat to talk to someone who worked so hard on a game that we are so passionate about. And it's been an amazing experience. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Frazzle. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cross Wires. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion and we'd love to hear your thoughts. So please drop us a note over to podcast at crosswires.net. You can also drop us a comment on the post or if you're a GoodPod user, why not start a discussion there too? You can also join our new Discord server at crosswires.net forward slash Discord. We've got forum channels for each episode and we'd love you to join the discussion there. You can also follow us on Mastodon at crosswires at mastodon.social. And of course, you can find the show in all the good podcast apps and all the really bad ones too. More of our content, head on over to crosswires.net slash YouTube for all our videos and keep an eye on our Twitch channel at crosswires.net slash live our upcoming streams. If you like what you heard, please do drop a review in your podcast directory of choice. It really does help spread the word about the show. And of course, if you can spare even the smallest amount of financial support, we'd be incredibly grateful. You can support us at ko-fi.com slash crosswires. That is ko-fi.com slash crosswires. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.